verse 27. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the Lord God of Abraham and God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all alive live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our Savior, the great wise one. Father, we pray that our eyes and our attention will be on him today, that we will see who he is and what he has accomplished and put our hope in the resurrection that is guaranteed because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we long to know you more. Help us to be satisfied with you. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus has revealed He is the Christ, the Anointed One, the promised Messiah of the Jews. He has given overwhelming proof of His position as the promised King of Israel. The good news has been spread all around Palestine. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the King. The evidence of Jesus' position and authority is overwhelming, as we have seen been going through Luke. Jesus is the great prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This week I was working my way back through the Gospel of Luke to try to help keep me having that big picture in mind as I go through these passages. If you haven't noticed, I kind of try to go through a paragraph at a time. But I want to get the big picture and keep that big picture in mind so I uh, periodically make my way through just reading through the Gospel of Luke again to get the big picture. I encourage you to do the same so that you also see this big picture of who Jesus is. 
This book is a masterpiece of revelation. It reveals the glory of Christ over and over again. As I made my way through the book, I was again reminded that Jesus brought two great reactions as He spoke and as He ministered to people. He brought anger and He brought awe. He was a shocking man. He is a shocking God-man and a Savior. He is the only human worthy of all worship and honor and praise. Jesus surprised people constantly. This worship and amazement is seen from the very beginning of his life, and it continues on through the book of Luke. And there's one word that kept jumping off the page at me as I read through Luke's gospel. And it was this idea of awe, or worship, or wonder, or respect, or amazement, or surprise. For example, look back in your Bibles, take your Bibles and look back at Luke chapter 2. When Jesus was revealed as a baby, there was awe. In Luke chapter 2, verse 33, and it says, And his father, that is Joseph, and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. That is Jesus. They were amazed. Then look over at 2.47. When Jesus reasoned in the temple at 12 years old, it brought awe again. All who heard him, Jesus that is, at 12, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Then third, look over at Luke chapter 4. When Jesus spoke with great grace in Galilee, it produced awe. Look at Luke 4, 22. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? They were wondering and they were in awe of him. Look at Luke 4, 32. And when Jesus spoke with authority, this produced more awe. In 4, 32, and they were amazed at his teaching. For his message was with authority. Look at Luke 5. When Jesus healed sick people, it produces awe. Look at Luke 5, 26. And they were awestruck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Oh, folks, Jesus produces Worship and awe. He's not just another man. He's the God-man that is worthy of worship. Look at 6th. Look over at Luke 8. When Jesus calms the storms, it produces awe and worship. Remember, he calmed the storm? And the disciples, and he, he said to them, Where's your faith? And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey? He produces awe and worship. In Luke 8, 56, when Jesus raised the dead, it produced worship. Her parents, that is, after he raised the little girl from the dead, 
Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. They were amazed. They were in awe of him. Jesus delivered people from demons. Look at these passages. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing. Look, folks. They were in awe of him. He was casting out demons. He was raising the dead. He was healing the sick. He was speaking with authority. He was speaking with grace. And the the overarching theme is worship ensues. He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of awe. And then in Luke 11, 14, and he was casting out a demon and it was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds were amazed. Yet at the same time, as people were recognizing the glory of Jesus, the reality of mankind's depravity has also been on display. Jesus was and is and will always be glorious. But mankind is wicked and lost and hate God apart from God's gracious intervention. This is why Jesus had to die. No matter how much glory he showed to the people, no matter how much he said, look at me, look at who I am, they continued to hate him. Even after awing him, they plot his death and reject him. Oh, folks, mankind, we are wretched people. This is who we are apart from God's grace. That's who we are. Even if we see the glory of God on display, we are those people apart from God's grace. In Jesus, mankind saw a revelation of God on earth like never been seen before or has ever been seen since. And yet those who saw the glory of God murdered the revelation of God's glory. That's staggering to me. Jesus is awe-inspiring. But everyone else who has ever lived is worthy of death and judgment. Remember, we saw last week that even the religious elites sent spies. And as the spies came to trick Jesus, they're silenced and are amazed at him too. The word amazed here literally means that they wondered or to be in awe, to be bewildered, to be dumbfounded. Jesus produced amazement and wonder. This is our Lord, folks. He causes even his enemies to awe him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is worthy of worship and praise and awe and admiration. Folks, this is a glimpse that we have seen of our glorious God. By the way, have you ever wondered why in the world would a human murder an innocent person? I mean, isn't that what we're saying when we anguish anguish in our souls over babies being aborted? 
We say, oh, why? Why would you kill an innocent baby? Ladies and gentlemen, they killed the innocent God-man. The glorious God on display. They killed him. Isn't that startling? This is who we are. Apart from God's grace. This is what we're about. Apart from God's grace. Even when we see the glory of God on display. We are wicked and rebellious despite it. If God incarnate was murdered by humanity, then it stands to reason mankind will murder anyone if they can get away with it. This is the wickedness of the human heart. So what's the answer? What is the solution for mankind's condition? It is a heart transformation. And the heart transformation is only accomplished through the power of the gospel. See, as God takes the message of who He is and what He's done, and it hits our heart with the Holy Spirit's work, we are transformed and we realize who God is and what He has done. As the Spirit of God takes the message of Jesus and applies it to the heart of the lost, they are transformed into eternal worshipers. And that's what we are. We are eternal worshipers. That's all we want to do is praise our King when our eyes are on Him. I posted this. I am convinced one of the biggest problems we as believers, or, or our biggest problem that we as believers face is not our lack of holiness. Now listen. It is our lack of an understanding and enjoyment in the glory and holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are all way too obsessed with our own achievement or lack thereof. We spend way too much time commiserating over our lack of holiness and then deflecting and justifying ourselves by concentrating on everyone else's sin. And lack of holiness. And lack of obedience. What we need most. More than anything else. Is to be much more focused. On the glory of Christ. And his achievements. For as we bask in the glory of our Savior. Sin. And the world. And the pleasures of the world. Become useless. And not important. Oh, folks, we need a glimpse of his glory. And we need to stay there. We need to pursue his glory. Pursue knowing Christ more and more. Show me your glory. I want to know you more, Christ. For as we know him and understand him and enjoy him and delight in him, sin becomes dead. Not important. Now, this doesn't mean that we make excuses for our sin and wait for God to work in us. No, that's garbage. It means we passionately seek the solution to our sin, which is our satisfaction and delight 
in Jesus Christ. That's the solution to your sin, ladies and gentlemen. Delighting and being satisfied with Christ. Listen closely. The answer is not a list of commands to avoid the things of the world. The answer is seeking the pleasure of Christ and then avoiding the things of the world become less and less valuable. And when somebody tells us, hey, avoid this list, you say, sure, who wants that list anyway? Jesus is better. Our problem is, is that as we go through the Gospel of Luke, even in these times we put the Bible away and we stop meditating and thinking on the glory of Christ, and we go to all those do's and don'ts. No, bask in the glory of Jesus today. Then go to the application sections of Scripture and go, that's what I want to do, because Jesus, you are my king. That's why we're going through the Gospel of Luke. Verse by verse, I want you to see the glory of Christ. For as you see Him, you will want to be like Him. Again this week, have you seen this in your Old Testament reading? You're reading through it in the Bible with us. If you're reading through the reading plan, there's one out there. You can catch up. You can do it. Try it out. Again, this week in our Old Testament reading, we saw the painful roller coaster of King Solomon, didn't we? (laughs) Solomon was responsible for building the house of God. (laughs) He He saw the glory of God descend on the Holy of Holies. He was there and he prayed this amazing worship prayer to God in praise. He was known as the wisest man in all the world. Remember, the queen comes to see him just because she heard he was wise. He was rich beyond comprehension. He had everything anyone could ask for. But yet, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes and talks as if all that he had and gained were really just vanity. And then, in 1 Kings 11.4, we see this shocking turn of events in Solomon's life. And Solomon is described this way in 1 Kings 11.4, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not totally devoted to the Lord his God. Solomon had a heart problem. He found his joy and fulfillment and satisfaction in places other than God later in his life. And it led to his demise. I think we're all vulnerable to this. Do you understand? Everybody in the room is vulnerable to this. To find your satisfaction in something other than Christ and Him crucified and the glory of God. You are all vulnerable of this. Solomon's awe and satisfaction turned from God to man-made idols and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Just because a person is in awe of God 
for a period of time, it does not guarantee a person will continue to awe and rejoice in God. We must pursue our joy in Christ. We must pursue it with all that we have, all the time. And by God's grace, as we pursue Him, we will be satisfied with Him. And all the things of this world will become strangely dim. It won't matter what people think of us. It won't matter if we're persecuted. Our problem is we don't delight in Christ enough. Over and over we've seen this in the Old Testament readings. The failures of mankind. Every new administration we read of in the Old Testament were shown mankind as wicked and rebellious. You know, I think this screams run to pursue the glory of God and the glory of His Son. Because God alone is able and has accomplished what you cannot accomplish. He did it. Think about this for a second. Jesus is everything that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could not be. Jesus is everything that Moses, Aaron, and David could not be. Jesus is everything that Solomon, Rehoboam, and Hezekiah could not be. Jesus did all that Israel could not do. Jesus had life. A life of total satisfaction in God. He was totally consumed with the glory of the Father and of the Spirit. Read John 17. I have glorified you while here. And I will glorify you. My mission is to glorify God. This obedience from the Son was not drudgery, but delight. Our Savior did what we can't do. Enjoy Him. So what should we do in light of our propensity to stumble and fall? Answer, we must pursue Christ. We must pursue knowing and delighting in Him. We must seek Him with all of our hearts, minds, and souls. We must be committed to Him. We continue this pursuit today as we look at this passage. You know, and as we look at the passage... There's more words about the trick and the trap. But the reality is, is Jesus just says, in effect, there's hope and it's me. There's hope and it's me. Today we again see our glorious Lord silence his critics. I know that was a long introduction, but I'm really trying to get you to see the, the, the emphasis. And the emphasis is, Study the gospel to know Christ. Don't study the gospel to see how you can achieve righteousness with God. Don't study the gospel to get, oh, I got to do this, 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 and this, so that God will say, yeah, way to go, you did it. It's not what it's about. You study the gospels to know the glory of Christ. Our passage today breaks down into four sections that reveal our Lord's glorious victory over his critics. 
They're very much like last times. Last week's, he got the perilous setting, the foolish trap, the wise escape, and the baffling results. The same kind of pattern as the last time that we saw a little bit of a difference in the foolish trap. Last time, it was a tricky, uh, very deceptive trap. This time, it's just foolish, and we'll see as we go along. So let's look at these three, four sections and, and see the glory of our Savior and how he puts down his critics once again. Let's start with the perilous setting. First, look, notice in 27. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. So previously we saw that Jesus was put in the crosshairs of the political forces with a tax question. We saw that Jesus answered in a perfect way and silenced his critics. Now Jesus this time is put in the crosshairs of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the intellectuals of Israel. They were the ruling religious power. The chief priests were from the Sadducees. They were also the religious liberals of their day. They were known for denying the supernatural aspects of Scripture and of God. They were also known for believing in only the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. They were the first higher critics, as you could say. They sought to reduce Scripture to a simplistic guide for social behavior. The Sadducees, as it states, denied the resurrection They said that when a person died, they went out of existence. They stated that there would be no judgment. They were the first annihilationist. An annihilationist is somebody that believes that there is no hell, no heaven. Just end. You die. You go away. They were the equivalent of today's Christian liberals that fill most of our universities and colleges, by the way, all USF students. Your religious classes that you take, the ones in the colleges and the universities, are filled with these Christian liberals, Sadducees today. They presented themselves as the intellectual leaders of the Jews. The Romans respected them because because they weren't always looking for a fight. They kind of wanted to be unified. Let's get together. They bowed to the Romans and they sought their knowledge. They were all about this word, you ready? Dialogue. For the purpose of unity and peace. Let's get together and talk. You know what that is? Garbage. Let's get together and talk with somebody that doesn't believe that God's word is true. You know what that is? A waste of time. Unless you want to evangelize. All they need is the gospel. Until they embrace the gospel... They're just going to say the word is not true. And they're going to argue with you about that's not true. How do you know the Bible's true? Because I've been transformed by the gospel and my heart's alive. And it's obvious. You don't see it? No. That's because you're dead in your sins. You need a savior. Repent and trust in him. That was a shortcut to the gospel. By the way, do that with gentleness and kindness. That was a little tough. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes that was. Sometimes it can be a little harsh. <laughs> this was a dangerous group, though. 
Because they were in power. And they used their power to influence people. So when they came to Jesus seeking to trap him with this question, they were a formidable group. Let me make a point about this danger of this group and their distant relative liberal Christianity. (laughs) When a group undermines the veracity and authority of a portion of Scripture, they are really undermining the totality of Scripture, all of Scripture. If God lied in one section, then he can't be trusted in any of it. Do you understand? If God's word is fiction in one part, then we can't trust that the other parts aren't fiction. So what does the liberal do? They attack the hard ones, which means it makes a crack in the foundation of the whole thing. But folks... All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching it, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All means all. All. As our statement of faith states, the scriptures are divinely inspired and God breathed in origin, which means that they must be inerrant and they're in their original writings and infallible. Grudem gives us a great definition of inerrancy. There it is. You can write it down if you want. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Everything is fact in Scripture. Folks, Jesus said the following concerning his sheep. Look at John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and lead them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. What's the emphasis? Those who know Christ, our shepherd's voice, follow and embrace his voice. We know it's his voice. We want to know his voice. Do we always understand every single thing in it? No. But we pursue knowing it and understanding it because it is the voice of the shepherd. Ladies and gentlemen, there are continuous attacks on the authority and accuracy of Scripture. Just like the groups of Sadducees, there are wolves in sheep's clothing that are seeking to destroy the authority of God in the professing church today. Any of y'all heard of these things? J-E-P-D theory. Ryan will know all about it. You can ask him about it afterwards. Go up and ask him. He'll tell you all about it. <laughs> or the Markin Priori theory. What's the Markin Priori theory? I'll give you a hint. You ready? The other gospel writers needed Mark. And they needed this Q document. There's this little Q document out there. It's kind of floating somewhere in space. And it was kind of put together by the apostles and they used that Q document to put together 
Luke and Matthew. You say, oh, nobody believes that. Oh, I beg to differ, folks. You'd be surprised. All of you that are USF, go to your religious professors and say, hey, do you believe in Mark and Priori? Do you believe in the Q document and JEPD theory? They're all going to go, yeah, that's some good theory. You know what that is? Garbage! It's junk. It undermines the authority and veracity and errancy of Scripture. It's everywhere. By the way, I think that the same thing happens with the emergent church movement. Because what they do with their understanding of Scripture is they take and they interpret it in their culture so that it's relevant to you today. So what that means is, is let's take the Scriptures and look at them and understand them and let's make the Scriptures relevant for you. The only problem with that is, is that they make the meaning what's relevant which means they destroy what the original meaning was. Listen, you don't want me to stand up here and tell you what's relevant at the expense of what it really said. Do you understand what I mean by that? You want me to tell you what it said and what it meant when Luke wrote it. Otherwise, it's not powerful to change your life. It's not the gospel then. Sadducees revisited in the emergent church. Same thing. We must be willing to lay aside our presuppositions, our worldly presuppositions, and go to God's Word to find out what it meant in its historical, grammatical interpretation of the passage. You must want to know what Luke meant when he wrote it down under the inspiration of God. Now, that's going to take some discipline from you guys because there's going to be times like poor Mark as he's going through some of these passages in the Old Testament at night. He's going to be giving you some details and you're going to be like, wow, that's heavy. Why? Because he's giving you the original context. He wants you to know what it means there. Otherwise, it means nothing. Otherwise, you're doing the same things the Sadducees did. There is no resurrection. It's the same thing. All of this is the same type of thing that the Sadducees did to the Word of God. So now, we see these theological liberals come to Jesus and present this deceptive trap. This foolish trap in actuality. They are like liberals we face today in our universities who just can't make sense of the miracles in the Bible, so they get rid of them. Now, in some ways, their trap is not near as hard as the previous spies. They come with a foolish question for anyone who trusts in the truthfulness of God's Word. When you look at the question, it really is kind of comical. Are you kidding me? Are you asking this question? Resurrection? Obviously, there is a resurrection. Obviously, God's Word talks about it. Obviously, we're going to be different. Because we're not going to die anymore. We'll talk about it as we go along. Let's look at the foolish trap. And they questioned him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. And he goes on with the story and I'll, I'll kind of develop it as we go along. Or with their question. 
The Sadducees here are referring to Deuteronomy 25.5. Deuteronomy 25.5. It was a law that was given to keep a remnant of Israel around. God did this. In other words, it was a law to keep from a family line and their inheritance dying, from dying out. God established this law so that the lineage of the people would continue on. Basically what the law said was, if a brother married and died before having a son, then the oldest available unmarried son should marry the wife, the sister-in-law, so that the son could be born to that woman and his lineage could carry on, the, son, the first son's lineage could carry on, and the inheritance would go to that son. This is what the story of Ruth alludes to in your Bible. Obviously, this was a law God established to sustain and provide for Israel because humanity dies. And it only survives through its heirs. In other words, life only continues by its heirs. By the way, by the time of the New Testament, the Jews didn't keep this law anymore. These Sadducees were blinded, however, by their ignorance. They did not believe in the resurrection, so they saw this law as contradicting the possibility of a resurrection. They were sure that they had had Jesus in an impossible trap. Because after all, they stuck to only the first five books of the Bible, and in the first five books of the Bible, there is no allusion, they said, to the resurrection. There is no resurrection in the first five books of the Bible. Very interesting that the author of Hebrews says that uh, Abraham believed that God could raise him from the dead. So though... In the first five books of the Bible, it seems as though there was an understanding of the resurrection or Abraham thought that he could raise Isaac from the dead if he had died. But notice over in Daniel chapter 12, this is the word of God. We read it this morning. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of the people, will rise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Sounds like resurrection, doesn't it? These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. There's a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, right? Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many... To righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Folks, there is a resurrection. They had this. The Sadducees had this book. But they denied it. Because they were reductionists. Let's go to just the first five books. Folks, we see this all the time in our witnessing, don't we? You ever been witnessing to a person and say, and, and people are prone to be selective believers? <laughs> You give them a verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Because they don't know what it means, they say, oh, yeah, I agree with that. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's one that they all like, right? Judge not, lest you be judged. They grab that verse. They'll hold on to that one real tight. Unless a man repent, he will die. Oh, that one's not real good. God created 
the heavens and the earth in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. Six literal days? Yeah. Exodus 20, he quotes from it. He sets up the Sabbath based on God's literal days. If not, hey, you know, the Sabbath really is a, a million years. Okay, some of us are like, yeah, I can handle that. When does it start and when does it end? Ladies and gentlemen, this is what people do. They have selective belief. You know what that is? You ready? Idolatry. Why? Because what happens is, is they take God and they make him in their image. And they say, oh, I like that verse. My God's like that. Oh, I like that verse. That's my God. Such were some of you homosexuals, adulterers. Oh, I don't like that verse. Ladies and gentlemen, that is idolatry. They are saying and defining God by what they want him to be. And we can make the Bible say whatever we want if we keep our presuppositional glasses on. And that's what the Sadducees did. They read the Bible, the Old Testament, with selective glasses. The ones they wanted. They picked what they wanted. Look, God is not defined by how you want him to be defined. Did you hear me? God is not defined by what you think or what you want him to look like. You got that? God is defined by what he says he looks like. This is our revelation of who God is. Now, look at Jesus' response after they give him this foolish trap. The wise escape. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Jesus gives a very clear answer with two key elements. First, there are differences between this age and the next. And we'll get to the second one in a second. Marriage, in a sense, Jesus says here, is part of this age, but not part of the age to come. For those who have resurrected bodies don't marry and given marriage. This age, he, Jesus alludes to, includes death of the body. But the age to come, there is no more death. So there is no more reason for children and marriage. Because we live eternally. This is common sense. Is what he's saying. Part of the reason why the law was previously given. Was because people die. That's why he gave that law to Moses. In order for life to continue in this age. There had to be this idea for the Jews. 
But in the age to come, there's no more death. So marriage is not a part of the coming age. Now at this time, some of you spouses are saying, man, that's going to be real hard. So my wife's not going to be my wife in heaven? Nope. Oh, man, bummer. <laughs> I like it. Exactly. And you will be perfectly satisfied. And if she is a believer, she will be totally satisfied. She's not going to be, oh, man, I wish I could go back to that body of death and have you be my husband. <laughs> fairly sure fairly sure my wife will say, no way, I ain't going back. <laughs> Jesus reveals even more of the differences. Notice those who Jesus specifically is dealing with here are the true believers. Those who are considered worthy. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read that passage, if you're getting any conviction at all, you might be asking the question, then who's considered worthy? Right? Did you maybe think, who's considered worthy? That's what you should have thought when you went through that section. By the way, if you thought, well, that's me. I'm worthy. That's a problem. See, Jesus is screaming. Only those that are considered worthy. Who are, who's considered worthy? Those who repent and trust in Him. Because only He is worthy. The ones that are considered or reckoned or declared righteous are those that trust in God to save them. In Christ to be their Lord. Those are the sons of the resurrection. Those are the ones that are going to enjoy God forever. He said it this way with the emphasis on that side just to call them. Do you consider yourself worthy? If you've rejected the God of the Bible, then no. If you've rejected the resurrection, the very thing that God has blessed His people with, then no. Your God is not the God of the resurrection. Your God is not the one that you're trusting in, so therefore you won't be worthy. But as we saw in Daniel 12, there is a resurrection for the unrighteous. And they will face God's judgment eternally. We will be like the angels in heaven. Have you meditated on that? That's a, that's a deep one, isn't it? Be like the angels in heaven. And by the way... I get to give my little angel speech again. Um, it appears that angels are masculine. Oh, darn. Got to throw away all those little chubby angels that you got hanging out all over your house. Listen, when people saw angels, they were like, whoa! Got to give honor to this. They're described as a man. Uh-oh. No, I'm not trying to hit on the feminists or anything like that. That's just what the Bible says. Take it out with the Creator. That's how He made them. It's not, hey, look at me. It's about, hey, I don't care about that. He made them, and that's what He says, okay? The only ones that are described as having wings are the seraphim, and those are never called angels. Interesting thought called seraphim. 
Gabriel comes and talks to uh, Mary, right? And in, in Genesis, it appears that angels, when they came, they looked like men. And one of them appears to be the angel of the Lord, which it appears to be the pre-incarnate Christ. So they look like men, probably big men that brought fear. But when we are resurrected, we are going to be like them. Does that mean we're going to change all those things? No, I don't think so. But I do think that we're not going to have these bodies of sin and death anymore. You look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and you see that. Perishable will go away. Imperishable. Put on imperishable. Right? Jesus said, but the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush. So let's look at the second point. The Pentateuch points to the truth of the resurrection. This is, this is really good. <laughs> because it's as if Jesus takes the very thing that they were holding on to, and he, he uses their very tool to condemn them. Do you understand? In other words, the ones that say... Well, I believe this. Okay, well, I'll take the part you believe and I'll show you. <laughs> it was very merciful. It's very interesting to me that the, in, the, in the liberal Christianity today, there's a big movement that believe the words of Jesus. They, they, they take all the miracles out, take everything out but the words of Jesus. How do you do that? When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's screaming, I'm God, in that passage. Which they deny the incarnation. Do you see? It doesn't fit. If they really rightly interpret any of the scriptures, they'll see that God is all of the scriptures. He's revealed as in the scriptures, all of the scriptures. Notice it says... But that the dead are raised, Jesus says, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now this is talking about Exodus chapter 3. This would be, if there was one passage the Sadducees would know, this would probably be it. Because this is the heart of their religion, Exodus 3. This is when God meets Moses in the burning bush and gives them his name, right? Yahweh. I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. That one goes over real well. Tell them I am sent you. What's he talking about? He's a self-existent one. He's not bound by time and space. He is Yahweh. And like I told you, the important thing to remember is, in understanding Scripture is to know the historical grammatical meaning of a passage in its original context. So what does Jesus do? Jesus is a perfect exegete. He explains the passage perfectly. He literally quotes from Moses where God said, I myself am the God of your father. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible recording what God said. And what God said was what? I myself am the God of your father. Now I told you, grammar matters. 
Grammar matters. And all of you went, really? I didn't like grammar in high school. Then I went to seminary and fell in love with it. I love grammar. (laughs) Why? Because it reveals great truths about who God is through his word. And here we see in a very important thing, what is the tense of the verb? I am presently. I am presently the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am presently God of Abraham. And that's what Jesus says in effect. He says, look, he's not God of dead people that have gone out of existence. They're alive. He is presently at that point when he was saying, I am presently their God. They are alive. Abraham is alive. Kent Hughes used this illustration. It's really good. To explain what Jesus was saying. If someone comes to you and says, I was your father's friend. I was your father's friend. This implies either a change in relationship. In other words, I got mad at him. I'm no longer his friend. Or it could mean that your father passed away. Right? It's no longer. I was your father's friend. But if somebody comes to you and says, I am your father's friend, that implies what? Presently, he is your father's friend. And your father is alive. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a relationship with him. Correct? That's what he's saying here in this passage. Jesus is a master, isn't he? He takes this. And he goes right to their own book, and he pulls out their favorite verses, and they say, and he says, see, there's a resurrection. Yeah, wisdom, isn't it? Wisdom. What a glorious God. What a glorious Savior. So Jesus says, in effect, God is in relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now because they live. And Jesus concludes, now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. So one short explanation, Jesus once again silences his critics. And at the same time, not only did Jesus silence his critics, but he also gave all of us who believe in him a glorious glimpse into the future. (laughs) He told us there's a resurrection coming. This is a great glimpse into the grace and knowledge and kindness promised to us who are considered worthy. That is, reckoned righteous because we have turned from our sin and trusted in Christ alone. What you see is not what you get. It's not only about what you see here. There's much more. Resurrection's coming. For everyone who has embraced the Savior, we are promised a coming day when we will have new bodies. Unstained by sin. When the rapture happens or we die and we're resurrected and our bodies are resurrected. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. I think this will be a good place for us to stop. This is what we look forward to, ladies and gentlemen. This 
is our glorious hope. All of you that have repented and trusted in Christ, these are some sweet words. Behold, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, that is, we will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory... Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is found in Him. Resurrection is found in Christ. Bask in the glory of your Savior today. And know that one day you will be with Him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious promise for all of us who have trusted in you. Oh God, if there's anyone here that is not trusted in you, has not turned from their sins and committed to you, forsaken the way of the world and trusted in you, forsaken the idols that they had in their hearts, of a God that they wanted to worship, not you who are revealed in the Word. God, I pray that today you will show them your glory and your Spirit will take the gospel of Christ crucified and resurrected and penetrate their hearts and cause them to worship you for eternity. Thank you, Father, for your Word. Thank you that you are the all-wise, all-knowing God of the universe. There is none like you. Not to us, O God, not to us, but to your name be all glory and honor and power. In your name we pray.